Fantasy-animation.org is a website with a difference. It is not-for-profit and it's run entirely by academics and professional animators. And this means that whether you are reading our latest blog or accessing our latest podcast, thanks for downloading by the way, you can be sure that you are getting the most up-to-date and informed commentary on the colliding worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Whether you are a budding animator yourself, a student of fantasy or animation, or just someone who wants to learn more about the history and theory behind these overlapping media, mediums and genres, why not find out more at fantasy-animation.org or subscribe to our various social media threads on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Reddit, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research. While you're at it, subscribe to the podcast, give us a star rating and better yet, a quick written review as well. It all helps to make the visibility of our project even stronger and attract more like-minded people like yourself to our growing network of fans. For now, do enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am Alex Sargent. And I am Chris Holliday. Uh, this week we're doing something a little bit different, Chris. We're not doing a film or a filmmaker, but I guess in a way a kind of subcontinent. So there's a lot to talk about in the next hour. We're going to sort of do a little introduction to um, sub-Saharan African animation, which is a really rich, uh, a wonderful topic that I knew nothing about five days ago and have had the pleasure of watching a few movies um for me as a fantasy theorist um traveling sort of to a new continent which you don't have expertise is really kind of interesting but fraught with some issues you know what is a fantasy in a different culture um how can we map one understanding of kind of folklore or onto another understanding which might have very different cultural and historical traditions um they might have very different attitudes to ideas of the supernatural to ideas of reality so i've got a lot of things to think through in this episode how about you chris Yep, I'm I'm really interested in the sort of I guess something we've touched on to some extent, the sort of core periphery model. I think this informs actually the, the topic of today's podcast, sort of informs or shapes or relates to the way that we think about what things to do on the podcast and, and trying quite closely and, and hopefully with some consideration to think about animation as an artistic practice. Uh and a set of context, industrial context, social context, political context outside of, of sort of the West. Um so that the sort of cross-section of, of animated examples that we've got to, to go through today, I think, offer some really interesting nooks and crannies into certainly a, a history that I wasn't um, yeah, wasn't familiar with. And, and just before we came on, you said me and you are most definitely the Luddites in the room. So um, we can definitely defer to our, to our special guest on this one. So, so we're the Luddites. Let's introduce the person that actually knows what they're yes. talking about. Yes. Um, we are very uh, privileged today to be joined by Dr. Paula Callas, who is an associate professor um, at the University of Bournemouth. Um, Paula works on um, sub-Saharan African animation in a variety of different forms. Um, she's published widely on the subject in a number of uh, academic journals and um, publications. And she also recently worked on the UNESCO Africa Animated Project, which is a five-week residency supporting um, pan-African animation based in East Africa. Um, Paula's really um, a wonderful person to at least give listeners who might not be familiar with this really rich but diverse landscape of, of animation at least a little bit of an introduction to it. So Paula, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, yeah, me too. We've yeah. got we've got a lot to cover, and, and I think we should say as a, as an outset, this isn't meant to be any kind of authoritative, um, 
you know, uh, flag in the sand about what what animation looks like in this area. But but it's merely intended as a kind of yeah little snapshot, perhaps of future episodes or future projects or things like that. So I guess as a means of an introduction, Paula, you've provided us with a list today, which I'm really excited to get to. But before we start, why don't you just take us through the sort of the the, the story of how you became interested in in this this area of animation? You know, most. You know, early animators, at least in the West, UK and Europe and America, kind of have grown up on a certain Western canon. Um, it's very easy to maintain one's fascination with that canon. Um, but what, what, where did your journey into 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 sub-Saharan African animation start? Okay, so my um, journey started when I was doing my uh, postgraduate studies in computer animation, and um, I was so I'm Maltese and I was studying in the UK, so I hung out with the international students, and one of my closest friends was a Nigerian animator who studied with me. And we were just talking about how, at the time, a lot of the literature in the field around animation studies had a very uh, Western-centric perspective, which meant there was absolutely hardly any information about animation from other parts of the world, namely, in his case, talking about animation in the sub-Saharan uh, context, me in Malta, and you know, our other friends likewise from other parts of the world. Most of the literature we were coming across was by um, scholars who were focusing on animation in America and in the UK at the time. Obviously we were looking at English language books as opposed to, for example, literature in francophone kind of context which um, present different histories. So that's kind of where it started, off the back of conversations with my friends. I um, got a job at uh, Bournemouth University and by fluke um, put up on my list of interests on my staff profile page was, you know, other types of animation such as African animation. And I got invited by UNESCO to go and uh, contribute to uh, the development of our um, residency program as a, let's say, education consultant. So that was the start where I got to meet uh, people from Pan-African context, so they were flown into Kenya and we sat around the table and we spoke about how uh, UNESCO wanted to create content for the, at that time, East African region which was not um, defined by language and therefore portable across different countries in that region. And my job was there was to go and uh, work with artists and teach them animation. Terrific. Uh, do you want me to go on? I can't go on. <laughs> so, what, what, what happened next then? Finish, finish the story. Well, basically, us. what happened next is obviously I created, I mean, I, I came across that whole rich sort of network of artists and people who were making work and I, mm. you know, and hearing stories about traditions and trajectories of practice that, you know, weren't just, if you like, in the moment, wasn't just for in the years you know, 2000, but had existed since the 1960s. So it suggested to me that there were uh, long histories of animation in these places. And uh, I felt like, okay, this is something I need to look into more. So I went to SOAS to do another postgraduate degree in anthropology of media uh, to equip me with the skills, if you like, that I needed to best understand what I was looking at. I, I haven't asked, and I, I did this thing quite often as I ask what I know is an impossible question, but I make uh, usually Chris answer it anyway. But I might I might um, give you a go today, Paul, if you'll be generous enough. And just before we start, you, you talk about this need to 
to tell the story of this this kind of um i guess neglected area of focus um to dispel myths about um what people think sub-saharan african animation is so i thought if you can this is the impossible question before we start with the first part with the with the, with the examples to kind of put this into practice what should people who perhaps have no uh, knowledge or prior knowledge perhaps they've grown up watching nothing but popular western animation and just because they like animation and they want to see something new they might be interested in some seeing some of the examples we're going to sh- we're going to talk about today is there anything they should know about the story of sub-saharan african that might help them to to access these materials or indeed is there a way of sort of helping them dispel some of the myths before they start watching them that you would you would recommend is there any kind of do's or don'ts so so ways to access the work I found, and it's based on my own ideas about animation, because I see animation as this sort of coherence of different artistic practices that come together. So for me, whenever I'm looking at an, um, animation from different countries in Africa, I also look at their visual culture. I look at what kinds of images painters might be making, what kind of... Um, books or novels are written um, about these places, what kind of stories are told, uh, what kind of sculptures are made, what kind of dances uh, people dance, and all of this sort of informs, because an animator will, especially uh, if they come from a fine art background or a, a background as a practicing artist, they'll draw from that. And when you're looking at those things, then you can understand better Um, the animation that you're looking at. You can understand the visual culture uh, within which it might exist uh, and where it comes from. So that's always um, a good starting point. And obviously, I mean, for me, like a myth that uh, maybe we'll get to talk about at the end is that, you know, um, it was actually a a really beautiful thing which an animator in Kenya had said to me who went on, he, so he did like CGI animation. He made an animation and then he made an animated like 3D game, which is like a shoot 'em up game. So you were basically defending Nairobi and uh, Nairobi was invaded by aliens. And the, the thing he said to me was, you know, why do aliens never come to Africa? Right, and that was like his question sort of really stuck in my mind that nobody thinks of, uh, um, Africa as, as belonging to the future, it's always spoken of as kind of belonging to the past. Mm. And so that's like, I think, um, what hopefully, especially if you're looking at what young animators are making now, it's very contemporary, it's very uh, future looking, and it's, it's very global, I mean, as well. Everybody's connected nowadays. So, you know, they're drawing from influences from loads of different places. Yeah, well, I, I think that your notion of framing um, this, this you know, a lot of things are what we collectively believe them to be and the power of the imaginary when it, when it comes to the, as you say, the, the, the us and them relationships. And certainly, I think undergraduate students um, in, in lots of different ways might have an assumption. Um, I'm thinking of, of, of universities that have courses about third cinema or um, topics in world cinema and and the way that actually sometimes that can shore up some of these assumptions that we would have um, about animation or filmmaking in certain parts of the world and actually the the films that you've so this is a good time as any to 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 talk about them but as I was watching the the, the films that you suggested I was thinking my goodness this these are going to slip 
perfectly into my animation course. I, if students, future students listening to this won't be surprised that now some of these that you suggested will make their way um, into the course because I was thinking these are really interesting spaces and sites to think through um, kind of notions of difference of, of the other as you've written about in your in your work, Way, ways of reading gender and, and, and so forth. So I'm um, notions of the skin, like I'm really interested and excited to... to to go through these and, and that run the gamut from from sort of stuff from the 60s to television programs where I was convinced it was Lenny Henry as the voice and I was right. <laughs> from the 60s to Lenny Henry is a good point for us to start there we this go. journey. So we're off. Uh, listeners, you can find the list on our website. You can find it on the synopsis. Please watch along with us. But let's start with the first one. Um, I'm going to ask Paula to give us a quick synopsis and explanation for why she's chosen each one. But the first one um, is an animation from 1966, I believe, um, entitled Bon Voyage Sim. So Bon Voyage Sim, Sim is the name of the frog and uh, Bon Voyage Sim is made by an animator called Mustafa Lassane or Mustafa Lassan from Niger and he made this film so you, the date is quite important 1966 is just after um, Niger had uh, won its independence um, and I chose um, this animation as Mustafa Alassane is referred to as the father of sub-Saharan African animation. So it's a kind of a go-to animation um, if you were looking at uh, sub-Saharan African animation, a place to start uh, in talking about the history, especially because, of course, it exists in a post-colonial context. So it's, it's possible to find examples of animations made in a sub-Saharan context in archives, but uh, those tended to be made in cooperation or collaboration with the colonizer and usually for didactic or educational purposes. So they're there to like, you know, teach people about things. And this is the first one, which is also political and satirical, which I don't know if um, you picked up on it. So it's a little animation about a president uh, frog or toad called Sim. And uh, he basically he gets invited to go and visit a neighboring country and he visits a neighboring country and he meets all these other dignitaries and opens a university and other buildings, goes to important meetings. Uh, is celebrated and uh, flies back home. So obviously it's um, satirical in that it's uh, making fun of the pomp and grandeur uh, that was around um, the newly appointed African leaders and these big ceremonies that happened uh, when you know people were being made. Mm, absolutely, no, absolutely. I loved, I loved, the, I loved it. It was um, a cheeky masterpiece. I thought it was. Um... A really witty film, and I didn't think the first thing I would say about one of these movies again. Let's dispel myths. Was that it was going to be really witty and funny, and and kind of and that would be my my um my overriding impression. But I absolutely picked up on on well at least that it that it, the sort of anti-authoritarian message of it all. Um, and I and I loved how the animation. It reminded, I'm afraid we're going to, me and Chris are almost certainly going to do this throughout the episode, which is we're going to compare it to Western examples because that's our frame of reference. But it reminded me of when we did an episode on rhubarb and custard about sort of limited animation as a hmm. as a tool to be kind of anti-authoritarian. Almost, almost the aesthetic of it is because it's quite imperfect and quite feels quite homemade. It works very well to kind of 
as a tool to express the feelings of the underdog or the uh, uh, and it definitely I felt worked really well for this. So yeah, I, I really like this one. Um, yeah, that's right. It's a line. I mean, it's a line drawing. It has no color. It's black and white, simple lines. And like you've um, identified, it uses. It's very economical. It uses and reuses animated loop sequences. Um, when I wrote about this, I some uh, European animation historians described it as naive, but I would. Um, you know, dispute that and say there are small segments in that where you can see that the animator is very skilled and knows what they're doing. And in fact, this economy is more down to access to resources at the time and what was available for the filmmakers. So obviously, I mean, that's true actually for most animation. Animation is always about economy. Mm. You know, animators are always looking for <laughs> short, quick ways to make work. Um, so yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, I think, really, really special. And it's extra special. I mean, I didn't give you this information. I wasn't sure if you'd find out about it. But uh, for me, there's a little kind of backstory um, which makes it uh, really fascinating and interesting. So Bon Voyage was made in 1966. And in 2001, I came across, uh, through a friend of mine who knew the filmmaker, I came across the same version of the film called Adieu Sim. Um, so Bon Voyage is like, have a good trip, and Adieu is goodbye. And it was a remake of the film, exactly the same thing, done using a computer, so very crudely like painted, like pixel painted in, um, exactly the same, shot for shot. Um, but the ending was different. So in the end of this version of the film when the toad flies back home he flies back home to discover his uh, country had been invaded by an army and so I couldn't help but wonder whether the filmmaker had always intended to tell that story um, where the toad came back and discovered his country had been taken over by this army and um, and if he didn't you know why why didn't he tell that story so I did a bit of fishing around to try and find out who funded the film. And it was the French cultural office at the time that was based in Niger that had funded the film, so the 1966 film. And of course, as you can appreciate, given that it was just after colonialism, um, the French still had a vested interest in controlling um, and keeping their hand, if you like, uh, in, in Niger. And they did that by having these cultural offices where they worked with filmmakers, um, you know, and if you like, enabled them to make films. So you can't help but think whether this version of the film is a, a tempered uh, story, given that he knew who was funding, you know, the French. So it, it speaks a bit as well about the politics of the relationships between uh, an artist, you know, making work in the 1960s just off the back of colonialism and their relationship to the colonizer well this yeah exactly exactly and it it made me it made me think and actually when alex was mentioning the sort of and yourself the the crudeness of it or the reactionary element that is manifest through form i had sort of two i guess two hats on the first one was how that feeds into my understanding and, and and the week that one does on undergraduate level when you teach students about the kind of the politics of an imperfect cinema and all of the discourses around um 
a kind of cinema that was shown and you know exhibited made in a different way exhibited in a different way um was more imperfect and the sort of yeah the reactionary politics to that kind of um cinema that is made outside of a of a studio system and how how this film felt very much of that and and and, and therefore i was thinking well is that just me reading in me reading in the myth of of um, radical politics and resistance into a set of films or into a film that is of a particular kind at a particular time. But as you said, you know, that that is very easy and, and, and rightly so to read that kind of post-colonial legacy as it plays out in these earlier films um, because it is coming at the specific historical um, juncture. And then I was thinking about the way that backgrounds work in this film and you said that there's a kind of economy in the animation comes out is always about economy. And I was thinking about Japanese anime where you have these certainly Astro Boy in the fifties and sixties where you have right. these backgrounds that don't yeah. that aren't animated. You're, you're essentially just putting yeah. the background behind the character to create the illusion of movement. Exactly. And on the one hand it's a it's an you know, the assumption is that it's an economic imperative, it reduces costs, you aren't having to animate the background, and you also are using broad sweeping lines to suggest speed and power and, and movement and motion. But there's also a visual imperative here, you know, reducing character movement between the poses, leaving things open to the spectator's imagination. And and so I I liked the the way that this film it wasn't just crude and imperfect and that's it there was something that was something else to its aesthetic style um and actually the role of sound that sound does an awful lot of the work in the film so yes i agree yeah I so I, sound yeah yeah so for me um i should mention as well like um mustafa alasan worked with jean rouge so i don't know if you're familiar with jean rouge the ethnographic filmmaker and uh and he also um got trained by Norman McLaren, who is um, a Scottish animator. So, you know, it's not like um, he wouldn't have had the knowledge or the or the, the know-how, which obviously then takes you to the next test, which is where I went, which is, you know, what are the resources available to people making animated films at the time? Mm. So for me, given that he was making it on his own, you know, with limited funds and so on and so forth, then for me it was not a question of skill, but a question of resources. Mm -hmm. There's also just that, you know, we we try and fight against it when we do other things on this podcast of that, like just because there's a certain mentality that is that animation needs to both look and be expensive, that, that, that expensive animation is good and less expensive animation is bad. And why would you ever make something that doesn't look expensive if you could? When actually, yeah, yeah, or that it can't be enjoyable absolutely. You know, as well. Mm. And I think like this is a really good example of something that is extremely, um, if you want to talk about it aesthetically, let's say simple. It doesn't have color. It doesn't have complicated backgrounds, you know, there's no like degree of detail in texture or rendition. And yet it's so effective and so funny 
um, its timing. I think it has really good comedic timing. <laughs> and with like when he gives his little talk to the ministers around the table and they all get up and do a little yeah. clap and then they talk. And the great thing is like whenever I show that, people always say like, it's great because you don't even need to understand French to know what they're doing. It's so readable. Um, even if you're not, you know, picking up exactly the words um, and what the characters are saying. It's, it's funny that you mentioned McLaren because, well, I don't, actually, I don't know whether we're moving on to the second one. I had a note about McLaren for the second, for the second film that you that you showed around his McLaren's treatment of live action bodies and the way that he kind of animates live action well, bodies. But um, why, do, why, do, why? Don't, that's a well done, Chris. That's a good segue. You um, are do, welcome. Or, or, or it'll do till the good segue gets here. Um, yeah. Let's move on to the second one. Um, so we're we the, the the other few are from the last twenty years or so, aren't they? So we're going to jump a few decades now. So why don't you talk us through the, the second one, Yellow Fever? Okay, so Yellow Fever is a film made by a Kenyan animator called Ingendo Muki, who I had uh, the pleasure of meeting and working with when I was doing my fieldwork in Kenya, uh, in Nairobi. And it's actually her graduation piece, uh, which she made when, when she was studying at the RCA in London. So when I met her, it was before she went to London to study, and she had been making animations already, um, in Nairobi working for a company. Anyway, so Yellow Fever is, um, I guess maybe described, I've written about it and spoken about it as, let's say, a form of visual testimony. It's presented with uh, this, uh, her own voice. So she uh, kind of enters into the topic um, that she calls Yellow Fever, but it's actually about skin bleaching products and how skin bleaching products are prolific in um, in her case, she's talking about in the context of Kenya, but as we know, it's also um, widely used in other geographies around the world. And of course, as well, then speaks to uh, bigger questions about identity and uh, color of, of one's skin um, and the preference to be whiter and, and what that means and the pressures that uh, women feel in Africa, I should say as well. So, you know, women feel in Kenya to be lighter or to have lighter skin. And these products, which they use, of course, which are extremely damaging. Um, I have to, and this is with apologies to Lenny Henry, but uh, this was my favourite. Uh, this was, um, I think there is so much, so much in here. And I, I was trying to write down, I've got notes when, when she's talking about borders and hierarchies of beauty and... Um, some quite, you know, the, the the dialogue is quite unequivocal. I am, she is chocolate. I am coffee. Um, talking about the true, the persistence of true ebony and and melatonin and and um, kind of it and the, and the way that the film uses animation to 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 tell that story and visualize quite quite um, stark images. I think the moment where she's talking about the the person braiding their hair and the different color of her face and has because she she wasn't able to bleach her whole body and so there's and there's some that's so right. there's, yeah so the the, 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 yes. the the animation is very good at, at, at visualizing these sorts of of, of uh, memories and obviously long long histories of animation's relationship to to things like catharsis and trauma and and memory uh, most of which i think happens within perhaps the field of animated documentary um of which this perhaps has a has a, a flavor but reading the description on the on the link that you sent um 
where the artist the animator talks about being interested in the implications of, of skin and race and, and i love this idea of ideas that are sewn into flesh which makes perfect sense given how animated characterization has to do and how how it how it works what it has to do um and a lot of I guess writing on animation and the, the body as metaphor seems really well suited to a topic whereby ideas are sewn into the flesh to create what, what the artist calls this kind of homogeneity of, of, of beauty. Um, my note on McLaren is really about the live action footage within the film. So the film moves between this live action and, and, and animated footage. Starts with animation, I think, and then moves and then moves outwards. Um, and there are, yeah, McLaren's film Neighbours that uses live action footage but treats it like animation, so frame by frame, so that these human characters are really jerky in the way that they move. And I, and I got a sense of that from some of the, some of the bits where you have this sort of performer dancing um, quite expressively and then you move into to a series of close-ups and the body seems to contort in a way that it's treated like it was animation. And there's something, which of course again feeds perfectly into these fantasies of control, which link to to questions of identity that obviously the film is about. So I thought there was loads. I mean, it reminded me of that recent film Hair Love um, that I think won the Oscar for best for, for best short. But yeah, I thought there was loads going in there and it's, and it's going to slip straight into my animation module because I thought it was such a... Um, a, a rich and, and, and a way of thinking through, I think students and, and, and for us as scholars thinking through questions of our, yeah, identity and, and, and race and, and performance, I think. Um, but yeah, Alex, what are your thoughts on that, on the movie? Yeah, yeah I, had, I had a note on fantasy on this one in the... Classic um, Sergeant. <laughs> it's what I'm here for. Uh, in the, uh, I thought it reminded me and both it both reminded me and didn't remind me of you know um discussions we've had on the podcast about animation as a tool for subjective expression um and quite often when we're talking about that we're referencing theorists who kind of make this connection between fantasy and animation as 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 good tools to sub- to to express the subjective because it is anti-material and therefore kind of more emotional in in its in its kind of language um and we've cited scholars like Catherine hume in the past and jane pilling who use like you know freudian psychoanalysis or or histories of romanticism to try and make that connection between fantasy and animation and and subjectivity and to me what just what, what didn't remind me of all that was just the palpable sense of um alienation almost that came across in the aesthetic in that it 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 felt you know when these theorists talk about the power of animation and fantasy to kind of express that which is within us usually that's quite an optimistic narrative because it's quite like and we can finally be ourselves in that kind of you know western i guess what chris was saying powers of control whilst this felt very much like almost like the animation has a certain ironic or bitter or um acrid sensibility to it and it's almost about the kind of trappings of you know a a, a person unable to self-actualize because of because of the external world and i guess we could we could make some glib references to things like franz fanon white masks and all that kind of stuff but really i think it's just it's just the animation has this incredible bittersweet quality to it because of that you just feel like you're one step removed from this person's interiority and yet so inside it at the same time that I just thought was really quite, um, yeah, beautiful. Uh, I, I, I think 
we'll move on to the next one then. And, and uh, this is the first of two to be based on or nominally based on, on West African folk stories, I believe. So, you know, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, why don't you tell us about the, the next one? Tell us about the next one. Okay, so the next uh, animation is by Kenneth Coker. And uh, actually now he goes uh, more by the name Shoff Coker, so you'll be, or Shoffella, you'll be able to find his work online. He's a great illustrator and he does uh, sci-fi fantasy graphic novels as well. So um, his piece Iwa is based on uh, Yoruba mythology. And it's uh, based on actually a story written by uh, Wale Soyinka, who's a Nigerian novelist. And it's the story of a, the, well, it's a creationist myth. And it's about the story of one of the Yoruba gods called Oloran. And uh, one of the artisans in the city of uh, gods in the sky, who was tasked with um, basically protecting this uh, sacred grove. And uh, the artisan, if you like, rebels um, and then gets punished by Oleron and uh, banished from the sky uh, down to earth. Um, but there are different uh, versions, let's say, of this story. And also um, this animation is also quite, um, let's say, loose in, in its interpretation of the story as well. So it allows for different ways of uh, reading uh, what the story is. So sometimes um, people might think that the character that is banished to Earth is also a reference to Shango, who is um, a king in Yoruba mythology that was uh, banished to Earth as well. Um, so there are different references. It's quite uh, multi-layered. Yeah, it's also made in CGI, um, yes. which I think is important. Um, and well, I don't know. You tell me what you think, and I'll add to it. <laughs> Should I wrote. I suppose I wrote visualization and I was thinking about um, some of the other areas on the podcast. Maybe we've, we've chatted about animation's ability to represent the unrepresentable. Um, and now I'm going to, I can't quite remember, but Lily Husbands, who is a shout, you know, friend of the podcast and has, has written a chapter in, in the fantasy animation book has written about um, an animated duo called semiconductor. And they sort of visualize in one of their films, involves the visualization of forces and kind of kinetic force and, and things that magnetic forces things that you can't see and it takes magnetic force and and these sorts of um energy fields and and turns them into animation so you have a shot of a lab and then you have these spirals of color and and um and so forth that, that emanate from particular kinds of um uh equipment and the idea of the animation can visualize this sort of phenomenon and i had a, a few it reminded me of that the idea of visualizing growth the story of personal struggle but also the body as the site of force and there's something around the digital perhaps that lends itself quite well to that to that sort of image so there's a few shots where the body is is aligned with these sort of jets or pulses of energy uh, and, and i felt like that the cgi yeah went really nicely together this would be a very different film if it was claymation, for example. There was something immaterial or there was something quite um, intangible about 
the CGI and what it was doing in relation to to constructing this yeah this because um, I think the title I read the title translates to strength of character and I read that more as as body as this site of, of of force and 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 whether or not the CG works really nicely to that um, so I don't I only, I only have a few a few notes on that because I when I saw it was based on a myth I thought Alex is going to get all excited and start. So, I mean, maybe to help or yeah. add to that, it is yeah. the second of actually two films that were made. So there is a film that was made a year earlier called Oni Ise Owu. So it's actually the same story, but it's um, more like a 2D kind of mm. cut-out graphical animation. So... Um, you can watch the story if you like and compare it in two different ways, which is quite interesting as well. Uh, just to, to think of how it's being rendered. One which is more like a, looks very much like a pattern or motif in, in textile. And this one, of course, which is completely um, very 3D and actually really, I think, uses a three dimensional space very well. Um, in terms of just the cinematography and how the action is staged and how it takes place. But yeah, maybe Alex has some thoughts. Uh. <laughs> well, the, only, the only thing I have to say about the, the myth is that I, I think, you know, in, in, in the Western tradition, at least, it seems to be that folk stories are very often used because everyone knows the story and it means the animator doesn't have to invest too much in the, the telling and they can get on with the, the kind of fun that surrounds the telling or, 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 or I guess doesn't have to invest that much in the tale, but in the, in the telling might be a better way of thinking about it. Uh, and usually that means the folk story itself for those of us who are, who are interested in that stuff gets kind of simplified and, and made less nuanced because actually the, the animator isn't ultimately interested in exploring whether um, the heroine of a particular Germanic folktale um, thinks this way or that way, but is just interested in kind of the, the, the opportunities for visualization. Whilst here, I thought that it kind of, as you said in your introduction, Paul, I thought that the way the story was told through the animation allowed for all these interesting kind of, there's a lot of repetition in the imagery, which plays into the repetition of the story and that, you know, characters give birth to other characters that give birth to character and there's a kind of cyclical narrative going on that's repeated in the kind of visuals of characters kind of bursting other characters into life um and and it allows for kind of multiplicities of viewpoint um i hadn't thought about this idea that you said that you could watch it and view it many different ways and, and it's certainly the most i guess for want of a boring term experimental of the five mm. you've picked out or at least the most the most narratively ambiguous of the five that you've um, that's right you've so can i mean mm. this film was made again he was uh doing his uh graduate studies in illustration um in the u.s at the time so um i was interested in how he takes this uh, Yoruba myth, so Yoruba being, for those of you not familiar with uh, Nigerian geography, is uh, southwest. So the Yoruba are a group of people that typically live in the southwest of, of um, Nigeria. And they have a lot of uh, different, actually, creationist myths with various different uh, gods, Oluron being one of them. Um, and being the most important. So that would be the character, Alex, that you refer to that breathes life into the artisan. And he's known as the owner of the sky, um, but he also is thought of as 
being responsible for if you were born with a deformity, it would be the God that would be responsible uh, for that. So he's the bringer of life, but also of um, bad things. Um, so for me, like Kenneth or Schoff's work is super interesting because when I interviewed him about this film, what became um, more obvious as we were talking about aesthetically what was going on is that it isn't necessarily directly located in an aesthetic that sits within southern Nigeria. So in fact, the architecture, for example, is referencing a mosque in Mali. And he looked at people like Lottie Reininger's films with the silhouette animation. And he was also looking at, I don't know if you know, Louis Barragan. He's a Mexican architect. So uh, he makes these beautiful um, kind of outdoor uh, pieces of architecture that look at the interplay of light with very simple forms. So the and Evan Earl, for example, who does the backgrounds in Disney's uh, Sleeping Beauty uh, with the trees. So all of his influences came from a whole range of different places. And I feel that's why it's one of these pieces that speaks to audiences in different geographies. So you could be Nigerian and you would be able to um, recognize or identify with elements of this story. Um, but it isn't uniquely, if you like, or firmly located in um, an aesthetic or a visual space that is, yeah, this is uh, Yoruba, you know, visual tradition. Because it allows the, for the viewer to really yeah. take away very different things when you look at it. It's very uh, metaphorical in many yeah. different ways. Mm. Yeah, when you look at it, you know, even if you didn't know about Oleron and Yoruba mythology, you would still understand the notion of creation and falling from the sky and then giving life to the tree at the end, which for me as well, I was when I was watching that and then I looked at Pumzi, I just thought, oh, well, that's uncanny because Pumzi yeah. ends with a very similar um, ending. Spoiler alert. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> oh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, 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 to, to, to be perverse, should we do Pumzi now, seeing as you mentioned it, and then we will literally be li saving Lenny Henry to last oh. in this kind of Kurtz. He can remain like a Kurtz-esque... Um, figure as we sort of carry down the okay. river. Um, let's, let's, do, let's do Pumzi. Okay. So, uh, Pumzi. Pumzi is, I have to be careful, I've even made notes about this because I don't want to get it wrong. Pumzi is described as an Afrofuturist uh, short yeah. film. I would say described because it's something that the writer and director uh, Wanui Kahiyu uh, disputes. Uh, so she's a Kenyan um, writer, well, filmmaker as well. And, um, yeah, I mean, maybe this is something we can talk about a bit more about how the term Afrofuturism is um, for her problematic. But that's how it's described. We could also talk about it as a science fiction film. And in this uh, story, the story takes place in, uh, in the future after World War Three uh, in an East African region where a community of people, if you like, live in a self-sustaining or self-sustainable pod, I guess. I, I might describe it like that. And there's one uh, key character called Asha who 
comes across uh, evidence of life on the outside and tries to seek out uh, this life, which comes to her uh, through dreams as a tree, as this image of a tree. Um, and obviously water as well is, is very important, uh, as an important uh, kind of element in this film. Is that is that a good summary? What yeah, did you say? That's, that's, that, that's great, yeah. And I, and I and I didn't know that they. That I didn't know it was described as Afrofuturist. That's not what came to mind for me. I'd like to hear more about why, about more why that term perhaps is worth problematizing. But obviously, on a kind of categorical level, this doesn't seem to me very Afrofuturist in that it's it's not optimistic about the future in any way, shape, or form. Right? There's there's it's a it's a dystopic narrative. We should say this is a this is a nominally live action. Of the, of, the, of the five, this is the only one that's normally mainly live action with with VFX. Yeah, thanks for um, that. And, and and it's a character, and it's a character, and it's a story about a character that literally has to take dream suppressors. Like that's how bleak the kind of rhetoric is of dystopic. So on that level, I can completely see why you would object to be, it being called an Afrofuturism. But but there's something beyond yeah, that. Yeah. So Afrofuturism uh, is a term that came about in the 1990s, and it's used uh, actually to refer to films that um, interweave, if you like, African diaspora culture, I mean, if there is such a thing, right, with science fiction. But it uh, emerged, if you like, in the States. So, so recently, there's a, uh, I say recently, let's say in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of talk about how the term Afrofuturist has been reclaimed by African filmmakers. So again, not the diaspora, but how do you take that word and what does it mean to an African filmmaker? Because of course, when it was conceived of in the 1990s, um, it was used in a very different context uh, to refer to a very different thing. Um, but in the case of this film director, she also um, kind of has a problem with the term in that what it does in her mind is it um, basically, again, labels something. And she is quite vocal about not wanting to be labeled as an African filmmaker, right? It's, she is a filmmaker, or uh, rather what she likes saying is I'm a storyteller um, and sort of leave it at that. Because of course, that brings about what we were talking about at the beginning, a set of uh, you know, ideas in people's minds about what things should or shouldn't look like uh, or what they should and shouldn't be. Um, that said, it's, you know, loads of people do refer to it as Afrofuturist, and so you, you know, I, I felt I had to mention that. Well, the, the, the specificity of, of, of Mark Derry coining Afrofuturism within within the context of, of America I'd not I'd not kind of I'd not kind of registered in the way that because I've been doing a bit of reading around sort of Afri Alex mentioned it's a little less optimistic so I've been reading about afro pessimism and exact and, and essentially that as a counter category so the idea that just because you take uh, black identity combine it with science fiction and when you use that to sort of plot a a hypothetical or a, a, an empowered black subjectivity. Um, there are ways in which you can combine black identity and science fiction and err on the side of Afro-pessimism. So writing that or, or a framework that engages with the 
instrumentalizing of of blackness um that talks about the ongoing effects of racism and colonialism there was there was a flavor of that in this film um because you know there there wasn't that much animation beyond a few kind of holograms and nominal effects and, and and things like that but i was thinking again about about ideas of control and whether or not afrofuturism is is the, the one side of the coin but there is certainly a a long standing um let me just find i was yeah really uh, blacks do not function as political subjects instead our flesh and energies are instrumentalized for post-colonial immigrant feminist lgbt and workers agendas and there's something there's something the other side here of of, of afrofuturism that i think maybe the film uh taps into in a slightly different way so that was a quote yeah frank b um wilderson the third um a way of interpreting a certain society's ongoing dependence on anti-black violence and there was something in the film that perhaps chimed with some of those kinds of, of definitions it's certainly an idea that's that's new new to me because i think the, the assumption when we did black panther black panther episode we kind of talked quite positively and wonderfully about afrofuturism but there's something else going on going on here in that alignment with black subjectivity and um and, and science fiction which which the film sort of you know the end I mean, with the, the tree and if if uh sorry this is just a small side plug but if you're interested in plug um, away. in a kind of uh satirical kind of parody of afrofuturism look at there's a artist collective called the nest in kenya and they have this really funny skit with this artist who is parodying the idea of like, you know, Afrofuturism is really in and basically it's what the West wants from us. So if we just do stuff that's Afrofuturist, yeah. you know, we're all right kind of thing. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, interesting. Us and them. Yes, yeah. always. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So, so on the subject of myths and co-productions and the compromised politics of working with a Western uh, partner... Now there's that, a segue. That te- there's this a segue. teases up uh, our final choice, uh, Tinga Tinga Tales, um, which the episode we should say... Uh, well, I'll let Paula set up what this is. So um, Tinga Tinga Tales is uh, an animated series Um if your listeners are based in the UK, they probably might have watched one or two episodes, especially if they have children. It was on the BBC. And it was produced by a British animation company called uh, Tiger Aspect. The producer's called Claudia Lloyd, and she was responsible for animations like uh, Charlie and Lola and Mr Bean. Um, so those animated series. But what's interesting is this animation was made um, by animators in Kenya. So, and uh, the artists and designers were Tanzanian. Um, And it takes, uh, let's say, African folklore, I'm going to say in inverted commas, stories of how certain animals came to be. So, in this instance, it's how did the elephant get its trunk? How did, you know, how did the tortoise get its shell? How did the lion get its roar? Etc, etc, etc. Um, and so when, again, when I was doing my research, some of the people I had worked with uh, on the UNESCO project went on to work at the animation studios based in Nairobi. It was a really important, actually, uh, event to happen in Nairobi because it co uh, a lot of young uh, 
um, Kenyan animators together. And it was the first like big production to be made in Kenya. So um, it had that significance. It's also significant for me because around it at the time, there were lots of polemics about ownership. So for me, uh, I was ex interested in um, cultural or this idea of ownership around culture and heritage. And so to explain this a little bit more, when you watch Tinga Tinga Tales and you're looking at the characters and the way the characters are drawn and designed, um, the word Tinga Tinga comes from an art cooperative based in Tanzania, um, which was set up by a Tanzanian artist called Edward Saidi Tinga Tinga. And he was making paintings in the 1960s. Um, and then there's this whole cooperative of artists that make these Tinga Tinga paintings. So Tinga Tinga paintings have a very uh, easily recognizable style, a very defined style. And they always, uh, for the most part, I'd say nearly all the ones I've seen, depict animals. And they have repetitious motifs. They tend to be mirrored. They tend to be uh, patterned in particular ways. And the painter who made the paintings used uh, bicycle paint to make the paintings because he was able to apply uh, thin lines uh, without it, um, without the underlying colors coming through. So if you saw a Tinga Tinga painting and you were an animator or someone who worked in animation, uh, you'd be forgiven for thinking, wow, these would make brilliant animated characters um, because you could just see quite clearly how that could map over into animation. And the story goes that the producer was learning Swahili in Tanzania. She had bought a few paintings herself and then um, thought, yeah, this is something that could be made into an animated series. Um, she looked at stories like this African folklore that, you know, how, how an animal did this, how an animal did that which were out of copyright, um, and then that became the basis uh, for the series. The episode that uh, we've watched is on how the elephant got its trunk, but uh, what I was extra amused by was in fact, I don't know if you guys knew this, the story uh, on how the elephant got its trunk was written um, by uh, what, uh, Rudyard Kipling, who wrote the Jungle Book. And, um, and then, you know, you begin to start thinking again around questions of authenticity and identity. And, well, you know, where does this story come from? And who's telling the story? And whose story is it? Um, I mean, yeah, I, th I mean, I, I, I liked this. It was fun. I would happily do a whole, um, you know, podcast about it. I think it was a fun um a show I thought it was visually beautiful. Uh, it was nice to hear about the, the sort of context around the art. I, I knew that the, the, what I saw in my research about that the Tinga uh, uh, art and, and how it came from. I thought the design was beautiful. Um, I don't have that much. I think it was witty again, so it's nice to draw back on witty. We started with witty. I thought it was extremely witty. The Rudyard Kipling thing I had noticed, um, so that's an interesting thing. I believe that's probably one of his just-so stories in that case. So that's you know an appropriation of Indian mythology turned into a sort of cosy Western narrative, then transplanted and given to Africa. As yeah, I mean the politics of that are bonkers, uh, but but worth flagging up so people can unpack. The only thing I guess to to, to 
I, we haven't got a huge amount of time left. I mean, should we say anything? We have said that Lenny Henry is in it about 80 times. Have so we? There's, there's a strange vo- vocal casting in that most of the cast, I believe, are, are British. Um, American as well. American. Right, yeah, right, yeah okay. Um, only one or two uh, Kenyan voice actors. The little boy, uh, sorry, the, so the red monkey is voiced by a, a, yeah. a boy, yeah, a Kenyan boy. Um, and in fact, when I had spoken to the producer at the time as well, that was um, kind of, yeah, driven by just, you know, how can we get this to sell, where you get it to sell when you have good voice actors. And they didn't want mm. it to belong to a specific place. I mean, I find it funny, like Lenny Henry has a completely different <laughs> accents to uh, some of the other characters. And I d- you know, I don't know if that necessarily works or it doesn't. But again, it, it raises questions around authenticity and identity. And other people have written about the fact as well that this place is a place of everywhere. So it mm. takes place in the forest, in the jungle, in the desert, uh, you know, around the waterhole. So even the, if you like, the topology of of the the place, it's not one uh, it doesn't. It's a. It's an illogical place. It's not one mm. Africa. You know, in like, oh, okay, this is East Africa, south of Kenya, has a very specific kind of geography to the north, to the sub-Saharan, to uh, so on and so forth. And and the fact mm. that it's just everything is collapsed um, into it, which of course is if you like the the criticisms again that like african animators or african filmmakers were put to the west is that we do that right that we you know we just yeah. kind of like pff, collapse everything and it's like oh ever it's all it's all kind of the same and i think that's um why even though like you said it's witty it's fun it did lots of positive things you know which like you can't take away from it it's um it was both uh both an animation which was uh, object of pride for the Kenyans and the Tanzanians because they were so proud that this uh, animated series was being produced in Kenya and that it, um, you know, represented, if you like, the creative talent in the country. But at the same time, also, you know, uh, something that they critiqued a lot for um, just mm, not differentiating necessarily um, between you know yeah. Tanzania and Kenya and creating problems even between Tanzanians and Kenyans so like injustice is on the blogosphere like everybody was going I think you'll find it's not a Kenyan animation it's a Tanzanian animation um, right. so it was like international politics playing out but then there was also regional tensions sort of being played out yeah it was quite interesting yeah. to uh, to read that sort of illogical space that you you mentioned that, that the television program sits within, I think, on the one hand, the designs, which I wasn't familiar with the sort of the, the background of the of the of the Tinga Tinga style, but it makes perfect sense that sort of reduction of of imagery, and I mean reduction in the you know in terms of of yeah um, that that sort of reduction is familiar from children's you know book illustration and that that particular kind of visual language that allows uh, blocks of color to, to carry meaning and those sorts of condensed images where i suppose in in book illustration you have the the attempt made to build the child reader's vocabulary through those kind of colorful visual references 
whilst and through that pictorial brevity and that economy of representation. But I was also thinking about, in addition to those early, uh, easily discernible signs and icons as, as stimuli for children's learning, which I think this programme makes great use of in conjunction with that ex- explanatory tone of, of narrative. How does... A lot of the programme titles, as you say, are how does this or or how... Mm why does this happen so they are they are pitched uh, 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 you know it was premiered on on cbb's but i was thinking about when in something like disney's the lion king when they try and do um there's a bit in i just can't wait to be king the musical number where they do this kind of expressive illogical chucking in all these african references and vision and it just becomes this this mixture of different exactly that kind of thing really paints that part of the world with a really broad brush without that differentiation and and this i couldn't make out whether this program was doing was was leaning back on that kind of representation or whether it was a better version of that kind of representation i felt like this is what disney thinks it's doing in these really on but doesn't come close um so i was interested in what you said about that the illogical nature of the of the of the space, space really yeah i mean a better version for sure in the sense that yeah it uses uh kiswahili words um that there are kenyan voice actors yeah. that yeah. Yeah. it is visually located in a very specific um region and with the arts collective but i think maybe it's just uh like to give you an example you know we were talking about our students it's like when my students are pitching um, their visual research for a project and they might pick a European artist and they'll name the European artist. So they'll use, you know, name, surname, and, say, oh, and this is the name of their work. And then they'll find an African artist. And they don't even refer to the artist as, oh, and this is Wangechi Mutu, uh, who is a Kenyan artist, and this is her work. It literally is. And this is the work of an African artist. And, you know, so there's this sort of the idea of authorship where in the West, the author is the individual. But when they're referring to authorship to the other, it's just like, oh, well, we'll just generalize um, and put everyone together. And of course, what that says is that, you know, you don't see uh, that person as author of their work. And then in addition to that, you think that you can just appropriate their work recontextualize it and use it for your own purpose and so of course that brings to the fore like the whole problem with appropriation and that discourse that um african animators kenyan animators nigerian animators um, south african animators they're very aware of it you know it was an interesting one to watch and um and it is i you know i don't want to be too down on it i thought it was a really um it's great uh, i mean as a as a commercial project it's just really good fun and like i said one of those things which is it's important and you have to recognize yeah. it yeah absolutely and, and um i think that probably brings us to the end of yeah. this kind of really really whistle stop tour hopefully listeners have just got a little flavor of the real interesting diverse voices that might be out there that they could find out um oh this might be the third impossible question of the show and if it is i'm so sorry paula but if people wanted to find out more about this kind of thing or if they wanted to find more about your work specifically is there a place they could go to do you have any open access articles people could read or is there a, a website they could go to yeah so i have a blog but it's not a blog where i write words it's a blog where i just post links to african animation that i find online amazing um, and it's just Great. called well uh, African animation. I'll share the link with you later. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll stick, stick it. it. I'll stick it in the blurb. Yeah. And um, um, you know, because we because we have a blog too. But, <laughs> but also, um, yeah, we'll stick we'll stick it in the, we'll stick it in the synopsis for this episode. Yeah. So if, if listeners want to find it, you can access it on our. On also, our website. Um, we'll I can that. highly recommend a website called African Digital Arts. It's been run okay. by a Kenyan artist and scholar called Jeb Chumba. She's been doing this, she's been uh, working on this website for many years. It started off as a blog, but now it's quite a rich archive of anyone that's really into contemporary digital art in its widest sense. So animation, graphic novels, um, sci-fi, short films, mm. yeah, a whole range of material that's coming off the continent that I think uh, would really challenge those uh, stereotypes that people might have of uh, what creative people are making across the range of different African countries. Yeah. Wonderful. We'll have to check that out so that we can plan some future episodes on yep. some of the, maybe some of the features we've featured here and some others as well and, and really delve a little bit more into this, into this, yeah, vast area of research that we haven't even started to encounter on the podcast. And we've been doing about 80 so episodes. So shame on us, but um, it was fun to take on the start journey with, with you, Paula. And thanks so much for coming no, on the show and talking you us guys. through the basics. Thank you, guys. Uh, listeners you can find us at fantasy-animation.org as always you can access the blog and uh, previous episodes of the podcast there uh, you can find us on Twitter Instagram Facebook and Reddit fananim research f-a-n-a-n-i-m research let us know some of your favourite examples um, that we've either touched on or not touched upon your reactions to the films we've watched today and more um, or you can do that on gmail as well at gmail.com fananimresearch at gmail.com must remember to keep plugging that otherwise that's been us for another week and we we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Tinga, 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 tinga. Tinga, tinga is a land. Full of stories and surprises. Tell me about it. If you like to wonder why, Tinga, tinga is a land of why. You won't believe.